in you, Lord my God. I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me put, be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you, Lord, are good. Those are the first seven verses of Psalm 25, which is the psalm appointed for today, Monday, December the 5th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. I appreciate it. We are looking at, uh, continuing our look at the book of Amos, uh, chapter 7, verses 1 to 9, in the book of the Revelation again, verses uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 8, and then continuing in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 22, verses 23 to 33. So there you go. That's where we are. And We'll be moving on through those things today. You know, we just looked at the book of the Revelation just a few weeks ago, actually. But we're going to cover some of the ground that we didn't cover then. We skipped over the letters to the churches in uh, in the book. And so we're going to go back and pick those up now as prophetic words that are preparing us for the second coming. And so we, we come back and we revisit those things now during Advent for that very reason. So it's important that we we take those messages to heart, and not just for ourselves, but also for our churches them, themselves. Is how do we think about where we are as as the church today? And and I just watched a video that Suzanne showed me um, of a church that a friend of ours goes to, and, and she linked to their website for their worship, and it's well, hmm, I'm not sure what to say because what they church had done was build a boxing ring and like where the stage was and when the guy came out to speak he came out with boxing gloves on and a um, like a robe that boxers wear and came into this ring and was there supposedly to preach I didn't watch the sermon hopefully it was better than that whole idea that we have to do those things in order to preach the gospel. I, I just, it's, uh, I don't even know what to say. Anyway, <laughs> so here we go with Amos. Amos uh, is speaking to the, he, Amos is from Tekoa. He says, I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet. I'm a vine dresser uh, and somebody who works on sycamore trees, but the Lord put something in my heart and in my mouth, and so I have to now come and speak these things. He was in the southern kingdom. He was just, Tekoa is just south of Jerusalem, but he is prophesying to the northern kingdom, which is where Elijah and Elisha were. And we're in the time now of the second Jeroboam. It was a very prosperous time in Israel, but it was also a time when people worshipped pretty much anything and everything. And so you're going to see that and hear that in this prophecy. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested, and just as the late crops were coming up. And so what what he's telling us is is that that the king got the first cut of everything, and so got his harvest, and then the people could have their harvest later. And so what what he's saying is the Lord had a swarm of locusts that was going to come and eat up the people's harvest, but the king's harvest was going to be spared. When they had stripped the land clean, the locusts, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He's so small. 
And so he's crying out to say that, uh, Lord, they're all going to die. And so he sees this in the Spirit, in the same way that John sees things in the Spirit. He sees exactly what the Lord's going to do, and he calls out and asks him to abate his anger. It's the same basic thing that Moses did when uh, he was uh, contended for the Israelites who had sinned in the wilderness. And so the Lord relented, this will not happen, the Lord said. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. The Sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land. Then I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He's so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the Sovereign Lord said. So those those two um, judgments, Amos called out to the Lord and, and pleaded for the lives of the people in that northern kingdom, which he was not part of. But But as an Israelite... He was part of it, even though it was a divided kingdom and, and separated into southern and uh, northern kingdoms, and Amos was a southerner, he still recognized that the unity of Israel was God's plan and God's desire, and he wanted to hold these things together. So while he might have been in the southern kingdom, he still had a burning in his heart in love for those brothers from whom he is estranged because of geography. He said, this is what the Lord then showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb. In other words, this thing is perfectly vertical, perfectly straight, up and down. If you put a level on it, the bubble would be right in the middle. There would be no lean to the wall. He had a plumb line in his hand, and the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I asked. I replied. And then the Lord said, look, I'm setting a plumb line against the people Israel. I will spare them no longer. In other words, he's going to hold the, the what you do with a plumb line is it's a, a length of, of twine, rope, whatever it is, tied to a, a, a counterweight. And you drop that weight straight down, and it will stay straight down. And so you can see whether something is straight by holding that up and and lining that thing up. And so what, what the Lord says he's going to do is he's going to set that plumb line against Israel and see how far off plumb they are. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. So the high places of Isaac and the sanctuaries of Israel are those things that... Um, that have been built, those false places of worship that have been built in the northern kingdom. And the Lord says, my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. So the king is going to be destroyed first. He's coming against the northern kingdom and against the northern king who has allowed, abetted, whatever, the worship of these false gods among God's people. And that's the main issue is, is that they have strayed from the plum which he created for them. They know they can't claim to be ignorant of God's will and God's ways because they, too, were there at Sinai. Their ancestors were there. Their ancestors were the ones taken out of Egypt. Their ancestors were the ones who saw, who helped build the temple in the time of Solomon who saw in, in much of the kingship of David. However, now they've separated, and, and what they did was they created alternative centers of worship in order that the people not continue to go to the temple in Jerusalem, lest they decide to stay there and decide that was true and plumb. Not that 
necessarily the southern kingdom was more righteous than they, and certainly it depended on the king as to who was more righteous or who was uh, righteous at all. And so what you get is Amos, the Lord says, look, you know, it's going to be easy to figure out what should be done here. Here's a plumb line, and things that are not on plumb are going to be destroyed. That's just the way it goes. And so he's announced his judgment, but he also said, I have a plumb line, and so you can see for yourself the need for this judgment. In Matthew's gospel, this, to me, always is is one of the, like, the dumbest things that ever happens. And and I I think frequently when I read this every time, in fact, that what these guys are going to do, you know, like once they come to the judgment seat of God to determine their eternal fate, they're going to walk up and they're going to see Jesus sitting there. And every one of them is going to know, oh, my gosh, I feel like a complete idiot because of this scene right here. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to him with a question. So they just believe, the Sadducees do, they don't believe in all those heavenly beings, angels and things like that. And they believe that this life is all there is. There's nothing beyond this life. Now, why they believe that, I have no earthly idea why they believe that within Judaism. But teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him, the deceased. And that's called leveret marriage. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died since he had no children. He left his wife to his second brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? of the seven, since all of them were married to her. And that's the, I mean, if you don't believe in some, this is sort of the sort of the, the uh, arguments that the new atheists make uh, against God. And it's like, well, why do you bother spending so much time thinking about things that you don't even believe in? What is your anger over this stuff? Why, why does it make you angry that people believe things that you don't believe? It's just really strange that, that, that they consider this this much, but the, but the argument itself is as silly as it can possibly be, because what it does is it assumes that the age to come will, that, that this age is an, a, an analog for the age to come. In other words, it'll be exactly like this in, after the resurrection. And so Jesus says, um, you're in error. <laughs> because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage, nor will they be like, no, nor will they be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. You know, it, it's, like I said, the, the categorical mistake that the Sadducees are making in this question that they ask of Jesus is, is that they, they, they believe, for whatever reason, that that next world will be exactly like this world. Well, it, it can't be, right? I mean, it's impossible for that next world to be like this world, and the reason I say that is because it won't be fallen. And so that fall thing will be gone. And so we can't imagine for that reason, because we've only got this world to imagine from, all we can do is say it'll be better. We don't, we don't have a good sense, frankly, of, of what better even looks like and means in that context because we've never, we can't even imagine it. 
And so when they ask this question, there's a presumption there that about this whole marriage thing, and Jesus is going to be clear with all this stuff, that that's something for this age. It's something for this, quote, dispensation. And I have to put air quotes around that because dispensationalism is not sort of my thing. But there's, there's time dispensations, right? So this is the dispensation of the created order that has yet to be redeemed completely and restored and made new. And so we don't know what that next one will be, but it'll be populated already. And so what he's not saying is, is, is he's not repudiating uh, repudiating or refuting. Let's just mash those two things together and make a neologism out of it. Um, but he's not repudiating the the story, for instance, of um, Genesis 6, where the angels come to earth and have um, mate with the daughters of men. He, the, he says this is their... They'll be like the angels in heaven who don't get married and who don't have children and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't say they can't. It just says they don't. So it, it's this vision of what will be that's based in what is. And it's a decent analog. It's a beginning point that from which you can begin to think about the world to come, but it's not the ending point. And so we've got to get outside of that idea in order to get a true vision of what God's doing and what he will do. And in John, what what he's telling us in this book of the Revelation is, is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what's written in it, because the time is near. John says time is short, hell is hot, and the stakes are high. You need to know this stuff. You need to pay attention. You need to, to, to listen to what's about to be said, because this is a revelation that God made through Jesus, through this angel. He says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So these seven spirits before the throne are people that are beings that we see in Ezekiel, but they're also um, spirits that we see and we'll see more fully described in chapters 4 and 5 of the book of the Revelation itself. He says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And so we know that that John here is equating Jesus and God all at the same time and on the same level to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. And so John is ascribing worship to Jesus right here at the outset of this letter, of this revelation that he's given. And we're going to see that same thing happen in Revelation 5 when all of heaven gives worship to him. And then after his prayer here that he begins the letter with, he says, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. And Alpha and Omega are the beginning and ending letters of the Greek alphabet. And so it got, he's communicating here in Greek to John, not in Hebrew. 
Um, so the word is given to the church in Greek. And so he, he is claiming that he was the beginning and the end, who is, was, and is to come, the one who is eternal himself, the one that Maimonides, the Rambam, said in the principles of Judaism, the first principle of Judaism is there's only one necessary being in the universe, and that's God himself. The rest of us are contingent beings. And so that's exactly what the Lord himself says here. I am the Alpha and the Omega. There's no other who is and was and is to come. And so he's, he's making the claim to being eternal. And, and it's what we believe as Christians and as Jews, that this is true. And so when it says he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, which is the, actually nothing more than the continuation of the statement that's made by the two men standing by them in white robes whenever they see the ascension in Acts 1. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so it's the validation that, yes, this is how Jesus will come back is in the same way that he left in the first place. So you've got to have a clear vision for how things will happen. He came to the world the first time in the guise, in the form, actually, not a guise, it wasn't a disguise, uh, of, of a child. And when he returns, he'll return as he left. And so we should look for him in that same way. There's a, uh, a principle that we need to get our minds around, and that is that he is coming in judgment. And we need to know what that plumb line looks like for the church today.